video audio. Ah, I see, I have two microphones. There's no shutting me up today. <laughs> oh, well, look, it's lovely to be here this morning. Um, I'm going to sort of give you a whistle-stop tour through our season and give you some musical examples, and hopefully you'll, you'll feign interest and we'll all have a lovely morning. If not, there's plenty of coffee, and there's lots of um, chocolate and other sort of cookies, including gluten-free, Garrett proudly mentioned as well. So well done, you. I shall devour those soon. Um, this is a really amazing time. So we've been through Mozart's life. We're now in year five of six, and I found this a really extraordinary journey because it is not always what you think. You'd think that the life is absolutely paralleled in the music, and of course it's not. Sometimes during the happiest times, they write, composers write the saddest music, and other times it correlates perfectly well. And so this season, we're now at year five of six. It's roughly the years 1786 until 1789. So around the age of 30 up until the age of 33. The next year we'll have his final couple of years leading up to, of course, his premature death, age 35. But in these years, he, Icarus has sort of flown as high as he can potentially. 1786 is generally regarded as his finest year. And then from this point, there seems to be a bit of a downward turn, not compositionally, but in terms of his life circumstances. So this is sort of a bittersweet. I called it the golden years too, because, well, basically from last year and this year, in terms of the mainly Mozart season, we have him at his absolute prime. So I was thinking, and even though these programs may seem rather obvious, they take a long time, because there's always so many balanced things. How do I mix this? How do I mix that? How do we make sure all the concerts are wonderfully exciting and energetic, and at the same time touching poignant and balanced? But this is the first time that we have done an opening of concert without a soloist. There's just two big, fat symphonies right there for you to look at. Mozart, Symphony Number no. 40, then we'll go to the Marriage of Figaro, and then Beethoven, Symphony Number no. 5. And by the way, this is going to be one of two concerts in which we've enlarged the mainly Mozart Festival Orchestra. You will see eight first violins, um, seven seconds, and then five violas, five cello, and three basses. I felt we needed a little more heft for the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and we'll do the same on the middle Saturday for the Eroica. Although, incidentally, I, I realized after doing this that actually Eroica was performed at its premiere with six violins. But anyway, who knows? It'll be great. Actually, I just did it in the Mahler version, which is enormous, which has six horns, which is crazy, very loud, very exciting. Uh, and once you've heard that, there's almost no going back, but it's good fun. So now we come to the Mozart Symphony Number no. 40. These symphonies are almost beyond they're beyond famous. They almost become the gold standard of what classical music is. The beginnings are so iconic. And the 40th symphony begins with this extremely dark, brooding thing. And we don't entirely know why and what for this music was written. We know why the piano concerti were written, but he wrote three symphonies, 39, 40, and 41, all at the same time. And of course, the beginning is rather famous. That one. <laughs> but in a minor key, when Mozart goes into a minor key, extraordinary things always happen. And this piece, it seems to be offering something, it's the middle of this trilogy of symphonies. Some people think he just wrote them because he's trying to express something deep in his soul. Yes, he was, but with Mozart, there's always a financial incentive as well. He was trying to survive. So there's something else going on, but no one's entirely sure. In truth, despite all these years of research, the most famous symphonies ever written, why they were written, and for whom. It's really extraordinary sort of mysteries, more, more enigmatic than in, in the Enigma Variations by Elgar. We don't entirely know for what this is written. But there's something so dark and brooding and dangerous about it. It starts so harsh that it builds into this tremendous 
crescendo and power and this incessant rage. In fact, the one thing we do know is that he, in his two markings, his first marking was quite slow, then he sped it up later to a faster marking. He wanted to feel urgent. Again, in the minor key, very, very rare for him. But he's also an extraordinary revolutionary. And what we forget about Mozart is that what would happen if he lived beyond his 35 years? Well, we imagine, of course, in his operas, he would have gone even more crazy, deeper understanding of the human conditions, all these things. But harmonically, there are some moments which are just astonishing. This is the development section in the fourth movement. The development section is where the composers sort of take what they've done already and break it all down and show off. Well, if you didn't know this was by Mozart, you'd probably hazard a guess this was by Schoenberg. Not this bit. From here. That's all 12 tones. That's what Schoenberg did much later, and he broke down the harmonies. Where was Mozart going? What was he doing with this piece of music that we don't know who it was written for? It's absolutely revolutionary. No one had heard anything like this. The symphony until this point was always deemed to be something that you should be able to sight read, extremely easy, very comfortable, and not too difficult for anybody, kind of background music. Then Mozart starts to take us to a completely different level. Something hidden, something revolutionary, and we don't know what it's about. That's what makes it so wonderful, of course. Where words fail, music speaks in many ways. So then we come to the marriage of Figaro. In 1786, as I mentioned, this is his greatest year. Well, deemed to be. And he started writing opera buffer. Opera buffer is Italian comic opera. Before that, there was opera seria, of course. He was writing the serious operas, you can imagine. And then Singspiel. Singspiel is the German form of opera in which there would be spoken drama plus arias. We heard that with Bastien and Bastien in our very, very first year. But this piece, Opera Buffer, was usually about gods and kings and all these things. But instead, he took this rather dangerous play, The Marriage of Figaro. And the reason, of course, it's so dangerous is that it starts to break down aristocracy and their sense of entitlement that sense of the, the Duke being able to take the you know, young lady on her, the servant on her wedding night, first of all, I mean, just appalling abuse of power, and look at it in a different way. We have to remember 1786, that's three years before the French Revolution. Some people ask, well, why is Beethoven so much more revolutionary than Mozart? Well, he wrote most of his music after the French Revolution, and the French Revolution is the single most important political event in history up until that point. The entire world was changed. But the brilliance of the orchestration, the sort of the licentious ridicule of European aristocracy, the shimmering spoonful of class warfare. Gosh, I was on a roll this morning, wasn't I, when I was writing this? Um, and just this sense of seismic upheaval. It's just, I mean, we've lived through a period this dramatic, actually, in our own lives. Between 1989 and 1994, what happened in Europe is, was as dramatic as the French Revolution. But Mozart's already starting to show the cracks. And it was very, very controversial what was going on, the fact that servants had main characters in this, the fact the aristocracy could be laughed at, these sort of breakdown. It's, and again, we don't always think of Mozart like this, but he was. And I put the marriage of Figaro before the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, because the Fifth Symphony has a hidden revolutionary message which most people don't know. When we think of the very beginning of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, sort of like Mona Lisa, isn't it? It's kind of beyond music. It's so famous. What does it mean? It means V for victory. In Morse code, that means ba-ba-ba-bum is the sign for V for victory. And what else? It means fate, knocking at the door. He's going to be deaf. Surely it's about that. Well, no. 
And John Elliott Gardner discovered a brilliant subtext to this, which I shall share a little bit with you on it. I recently did a lecture about an hour on this piece. If I carry on, just start to wave the white flag. I'll try to be gentle on you. The opening of these notes means is actually taken from Cherubini's Hymn de Pantheon. And the words are, Nous jouerons tout, le faire en main. Any French speakers amongst you will know, apart from my appalling accent, that means we all stand with iron in hand. And it's a revolutionary clarion cry. Now, this piece is written in 1808, quite a long time after the 1789 revolution. So why is he bringing this up again? Well, for Beethoven, he felt that the ideals of the French Revolution, which happened when he was 19 in Bonn University, so he was absolutely influenced by it, as were all the students. The ideals were right of liberty, egality, fraternity, or la mort, or death. People always forget that bit at the end of it. It really is, this is life and death stuff. So later on, he wanted to draw attention to what the revolution truly was. The ideals were wonderful. As Schiller said, it was ruined by little people, Robespierre nonetheless. But this piece of music is all about this idea of a hidden revolutionary subtext. And it's absolutely astonishing. And of course, there's great moments in the middle of it and when we hear it sort of just break down, this incessant rhythm and, rhythm and strength is so, so strong until you get these moments, like in Schindler's List, where you see the girl with the red coat. This happens here in the Fifth Symphony, in the first movement, when the oboe has its own strange cadenza. Can you hear it? Suddenly, time stands still, and we draw attention to the individual. And that's what he does better than anybody else. It's not just about the humanity. What is the effect on the one person? And then we go again. And off we go again. And this piece is full of these revolutionary things going on. In fact, in the last movement, there's a moment in it, and I'll just find it for you, uh, which is, you know this bit, which instance he brings in trombones, and he brings in the piccolo in contrapassoon. Why does he bring those instruments? The trombone represent the church. The piccolo and the contrabassoon represent the wind band, the proletariat, the normal people. So suddenly he adds all this orchestration, the revolution is for everybody. This is 1808 Beethoven, it's been gone 20 odd years ago. Why do you keep going on about it? Well, because he really still believed in the ideals. And he gave some very interesting hidden subtext within it. There's a moment just here, if I can make my fingers work properly. If you listen carefully to what the cellos are doing underneath, again, a hidden message. cellos. Can you hear it? Liberté. La liberté. Again, from another song. He snuck it in. Of course, if he was shown to be doing that, he would have had his head cut off, because at that time in Vienna, they were absolutely terrified of the French revolutionary ideals coming through. So this piece of music is absolutely about the purity of nobility of mankind coming through right to the very end. And so the last thing we have, the beginning is ba 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 bum. At the end, we have ba 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 bum. We go up into victory. C minor to C major, paradua ad astra, struggles to the stars. The greatest symphony written to that point, potentially. Why? Because of that incredible journey and the fact that he always wanted the ideals to continue through. In fact, there's so many other things I could tell you. The second movement quotes a song which he wrote called The Flyer Man, The Free Man. And you can hear, see the lyrics within it as well. M loads of messages. So, those symphonies are revolutionary, they're amazing. 
Are you still interested? I haven't lost you yet, have I? That's good. You're doing very well. Good. If so, have more coffee. Um, so that's the first that's two classic symphonies, but a new way of looking at them because they are revolutionary, but in their own ways. And I, I will draw attention to that, of course, during the concerts. So the second program, I wanted to bring in something, a different flavor. So we have Ravel's La Tombeau de Couperin, Haydn Trumpet Concerto in E-flat, Arvo Pet Fratres, and Mozart Symphony Number no. 39 in E-flat. The Ravel was, um, was orchestrated exactly 100 years ago. This is a piece of music originally in six movements he wrote uh, in 1940. And it was meant to be an affectionate look back and a homage to Couperin and the great period of French music. Um, but, of course, at the time, in 1914, a, an event happened which, again, rocked the world entirely. The First World War broke out. And Ravel was about 39 at the time, and he was of diminutive stature, and he wasn't allowed to fight, but he wanted to help in whichever way he could because he was sorry to see his brothers and all his friends, and I mean brothers, I mean fraternity, um, going forth into the war, and indeed his own brother. So he was a nurse's aide, and eventually then he drove and drove a tank, not a tank, he drove a car, those kind of things, but um, his mother died in 1917. He had a bit of a nervous breakdown from all the terrible things he'd seen, and then he left. So then this piece, one of the first things he did when he came back to composing, because he couldn't compose during that time, was come back to orchestrating this piece of music, this Tombeau de Couperin. And what he did is he took four of them, he orchestrated them, and he gave each one the names of some of the people who died in the war, his friends that he knew. So it became a very touching, affectionate thing. And Ravel is absolutely brilliant at taking his own piano music and then orchestrating him. This is probably the most inventive and brilliant of all of them. His music took a dark turn. If you think of Laval's, that piece of music everyone thinks is a great orchestral virtuosic showcase, is in fact extremely dark and menacing. But the music of Tombeau de Couperin is just amazingly orchestrated. And all these wonderful movements, the prelude, there's the fallen, and the rigadoon, the last movement, is just fantastic. With our orchestra, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. It'll be the first time I've conducted it. It's going to be great fun. I'll try not to cock it up. But it's sort of an example that this, isn't a, this, is a, this is a homage, but it's not about the war. It's about the memory of people. And how do we remember people? Do we remember them always with sadness, or do we remember them with joy? And so the personalities that he attributed to this music, of course, is the, is the affectionate and hidden message within it. Then we have Haydn's Trumpet Concerto, and I put this next to the Ravel because we think of the trumpet as sort of the herald of doom, the harbinger of war, and all these kind of things. But the music itself actually is very joyous. The thing is, what was a trumpet at the time? Well, the trumpet has been around, of course, it's mentioned so much in the Old Testament, it's mentioned all the way through all of the civilizations as the great clarion cry of victory or defeat or whatever it is. But actually, the instrument itself is nothing like what it was today. In fact, the instrument this was written for looks a little bit like a trombone mixed with a recorder and must have sounded dreadful. And indeed, actually, composers felt they could only play ten notes on the trumpet and they didn't actually use much of it at all. But this piece, one of um, the, the court musicians called Anton Weidinger, invented a trumpet which you could play the different notes. So this piece, and, and then Haydn discovered this in 1796. I mention that date not just to show off that I know the date, but because it shows how much longer Haydn lived. He was born in 1732, he died in 1809, he was 77. Is this working? Yeah. Um, and Mozart, of course, died was half his age. I mean, that's the point. What Mozart achieved in half those years, 
is astonishing. For Haydn, 77 years of age, he had a really strong and good life. But this piece of music is brilliant. We have the most marvelous um, uh, trumpeter, Conrad Jones, principal of the Indianapolis Symphony. It's going to be great fun. And by the way, do applaud long and hard, because um, undoubtedly it's going to have a very stylish and cool jazzy number for you as an encore, uh, because I've asked him to do something. He'll have something. It'll be brilliant. Um, I also know that the pictures are going to be entirely about him, because he's uh, embarrassing and annoyingly handsome. So that's OK. There he is. Look at him, yes. You'll never see a picture of me next to him, which is good news. <laughs> Um, you'll enjoy that very much. It's really a uh, great fun piece, and uh, it'll be great. So the second half of this program, um, Arvo Pet Fratres with Martin Schallefort, the concertmaster of the LA Philharmonic. This piece has a, as a sort of a connection to the Ravel because the idea of fraternity and brothers. That sort of idea of the piece being written, Tombo de Couperin in memory. This one is called Brothers. But it's to do with his Tin Tin Abouli style of music. Oh, I know that one. No? Tin Tibulation? Anybody read Edgar Allan Poe? Bell ringing, all that stuff. This is to do with bell ringing. And it's this idea that Arvo Pet went from being an enfant terrible of the modern music to suddenly becoming very, very conservative, writing this very hauntingly beautiful music. And this piece of music is absolutely exquisite. And I, and I wanted you to listen to it, and I'll give you just a bit of the examples. You don't have to be scared. You're going to love it. Very simple. Small cells of music. Very basic harmony. Almost nothing happens. The theme and variations. And it's about as much about the silence and the stillness as it is about the music. So why did I put that in there? It's lovely. Don't drink too much wine in the interval or you will fall asleep to it. But you'll have exquisite, delicate dreams, so don't worry if it does happen. And I'll wake you up with the Mozart. So then we come to the Symphony Number no. 39, and it's for the last movement of the Symphony Number no. 39 I want to draw attention to this piece. Because the, the Symphony Number no. 39, was, like I mentioned already, was written in three. There was 39, 40, which we will have already heard, and 41, which I'm saving for next season, because I think that piece deserves its own framing entirely, even though it's written around the same time. I'm just doing a little bit of programmatic uh, pliability with that. But in the Symphony number no. 39, the last movement is really brilliant, because what Mozart does, he takes one single theme, and I'll give you an example of that. Just that. That's the da 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 That little theme, that little acorn, that little cell, that little strand of DNA, that tiny little thing, and he expounds into the most extraordinary movement. And that's what Haydn was so brilliant at, taking one tiny thing. And to me, there's something about the Arvo Ped, which is instead of seeing the big vista of life ahead of you, you kind of look down and you notice one single plant, and you enjoy the purity of that thing. One pebble, you look at it and enjoy this thing. And what Mozart is so brilliant, of course, is he takes the acorn of potential, which, of course, is the wonder of gardening, or indeed, perhaps even of parenting, and helping this to blossom into its potential. And Mozart does that so exquisitely and poetically with this single theme. And the humor in which he has is a fantastic. Usually, at the end of a big, big symphony, you'd finish with loads and loads of tonic dominant chords, and it would be brilliant fun, everyone would stand up and cheering. But Mozart wants to show how clever he is by making this theme go to the very, very end. And I'll play you just the last 20 seconds or so. Thank you. 
still one theme. And he's re rubbing it in your face. Look how clever I am. Still on it. No variation. One theme. Caused a wonderful thing that happens with his harmonies. That's very unusual to finish a symphony like that. Just reminding you of that brilliance. It's, and it shows the potential a little bit like the singular dot in a painting by Surratt. The, the joy of a haiku poem or sort of a, a, the brick, the potential of a brick when put in a cathedral to turn into a mighty edifice that is of wonderful joy. Food. We ate, we ate an anime restaurant last night. The potential of a singular snow pea in a wonderful salad is amazing. And that's what Mozart does. It reminds us that whenever we feel insignificant, we should listen to this music because actually it reminds us that all of us have this incredible potential. So now we come to the third concert and we begin with some uh, contra dances. And these are, I like the glitter. Well done, Garrett. <laughs> Mozart, Beethoven, contra dances, and these were music. So this is all about money. Mozart, in 1787, finally got a job in the Viennese court, and he was the camera musicus, or the chamber musician, and his job was to write dance music for the carnival season. Sort of musical prostitution for someone of his quality. But financial uncertainty being what it was, he wrote it. So he wrote over 100 dances for the Riedanzahl balls, bourgeois German dances with aristocratic minuets, but they were rather subversive dances. And I think this is an interesting notion of what the dance is, because here you have sort of the aristocratic minuets of all sorts of things. But in the carnival, because you were dressed in carnival clothes and a mask, servants were allowed to dance with the masters. And there's one of the pieces I do by Beethoven, which I'll play for you now, you'll recognize. I'll come back to it a little later. you recognize it? Yes. If not, pretend that you do. <laughs> Brook Violin Concerto soon after this one. This is an example of how brilliant Mozart was and how normal other composers were. This piece of music probably, uh, I think it's a glorious piece. In fact, Joachim, who premiered the Beethoven Violin Concerto, said this was on a par with Mendelssohn and, and above Beethoven in terms of the most insignificant 19th century compositions. He started writing when he was 26 and it wasn't performed in its normal version or premiered until four years later. He did six versions of this incredibly simple piece. Incidentally, it's the only piece, along with the Berg Violin Concerto, which any one of you could play the opening bar. Did you know that? It's an open G string. It's very, very easy. You'll be fine with it. But it's a great example, and when we think of Brook, we always think of uh, this incredible lyricism, where we have Simone Lamsma, an outstanding Dutch violinist who will be coming to play with us. And she was here about five years ago to play the Beethoven Violin Concerto. Really tremendous musician, and we'll all enjoy that blend of lyricism and gypsy fire that you'll hear in the last movement. So then we come to Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 3, and of course there is quite a lot of Beethoven this year because he died 250 years ago, so it would be impossible not to mention him and draw attention to him. I think symphony orchestras, the world over, all delighted that Beethoven died that period because it will fill their coffers this year because audiences always grow when there's a Beethoven series. But for us, it gives us an example to really look at him as a almost direct contemporary of Mozart. So the, the third symphony, oh, that's the fifth symphony, don't do that one. Not that one, this one. So the beginning, so simple, so elegant, such strength. We know that it was originally meant to be called Bonaparte, 
but he was so angry when Bonaparte crowned himself emperor that he scratched it out. In fact, he scratched it out so much, he ripped through the page. He was so angry about it. But he still had this symphony, wanted to be called an er a heroic symphony, or heroica symphony. And there's something about this piece that if you look at it in a new way, it actually really shows Beethoven's philosophies in the most perfect sense. The piece begins truly heroically with that wonderful thing. But in the middle of it, we know that this hero, whoever it is, whether it be Achilles, whether it be Bonaparte, whether it be some great hero of the past, uh, has to go to war. And the music which he does for this is absolutely astonishing and extremely revolutionary. No one had ever heard anything like this. This is the battle scene. Thought, swords thrusting, rhythms, and the harmony gets increasingly wild. Until he does these harmonies in a second now, which were unlike anything anyone ever heard here. F against E natural. Then we have this sobbing notion, and he introduces a brand new theme for the first time here. No one ever did that before. No one ever added new themes halfway through, not like this. And so this piece of music is just an astonishing example of heroism. If you have to go forth into war, you have to understand the loss that is capable that happens. So then when we come to the second movement, of course, that becomes perfectly clear. It's a funeral march. But it's not just a funeral march. It is the understanding in music for the first time of the stages of grief. The presentation, the restraint, there's a revolutionary song, then you hear moments of tremendous passion and outpouring, then you hear rage unlike anything we've heard before. And the very last moments of this movement are just incredible because this, the, the, our hero is so heartbroken, if it's Achilles then maybe Patroclus had died, that when the last thing comes we are not able to say it in one go, it's fractured. And then he stops. It's too fragile. And we don't think of Beethoven as being a master of psychology. But in this movement, we show that he is. That's that stuff when you can't speak, when you're so full of grief. Absolutely incredible music. In the third movement, we begin Someone important is about to arrive. Queen of Sheba. The hero, someone powerful, Hercules, someone big and strong. That's a great introduction. And if you're going to walk into a hall like a wrestling match, you want that going at the same time. And then we get this really weird, slightly naff thing. It's the bass part from a contra dance we've just heard already, an Englisher dance in which the master and servant could dance together. And it comes from Prometheus, and I'll give you a quick example of why this is important. Prometheus, as we all know, was one of the gods who was charged with, with creating man and woman out of clay. But he did what he was, not told, was told he could not do. He gave them wisdom, discernment, understanding, education the ability to grow themselves. As a result of this, the other gods punished him by tying him to a rock in which an eagle would eat out his liver every day for the rest of eternity. And a terrible punishment because he empowered the little person. 
And this dance, this English dance, which we heard in the contra dance earlier on, was a subversive dance between servant and master. And there's a moment in which Beethoven, in the middle of this piece, gives us this sort of John Lennon quality, this idea of Arcadia and utter beauty. Imagine. But imagine what? Imagine an existence where there isn't the aristocracy and there isn't the bourgeoisie, there isn't this punitive quality of birthright in which the people with power empower those from within, from under, give them the tools like Prometheus did to man and woman and then we grow. And that was the point. True heroism is not taking from people. True heroism is giving back. That's what Beethoven is talking about in this heroic symphony. And that's why it's so astonishingly powerful. I'll move forward. Now we go to the fourth concert. Glitter, jazz hands, here we go. Mozart, overture to Don Giovanni. Maybe the greatest opera ever composed? Who knows, one of them for sure. I mean, it's the most dangerous and politically sort of uncomfortable thing to talk about in many ways because we like the bad guy, the quintessential rake whose behavior is utterly appalling and morally bankrupt in every possible way. But at the end of his life, when the commendatorist whips him down to hell, of course, the world seems rather boring without it. Shakespeare was so brilliant at this capacity of showing two sides of one great hero, with Macbeth or with Hamlet. And you sort of have this sense of, you know, the Mona Lisa, is it tragedy, is it comedy? Dante with his divine comedy as well. This brilliance of showing both sides at the same thing, and Mozart is so incredible at it. And the music, we're so used to it, we forget what is going on in the music. It's just incredible. It just... Within just a few notes, you're dragged into hell. To me, this concert is quite a lot about identity. How do we see ourselves? How do we see others? In this case, there seems to be, and a lot of people have felt that Mozart saw some parallels between himself and that quintessential rake, Don Giovanni. And, you know, with his parting, and perhaps now his life is on a downward turn, he almost felt as if he deserved it. And you've seen some of his letters and later pieces that perhaps he did, and we'll look at that next year. So the Shostakovich Cello Concerto number 1, this will be with Maximilian Hornung. And this piece is about identity as well. It's a wonderful story that um, uh, Mr. Slavrostov-Povich wanted Shostakovich to write him this Cello Concerto for years and years and years. And, his wa and, Shost and Shostakovich's wife said, do not ask him. If you ask him, he will never do it. So he didn't. For years, as they were recital partners, he never said it. And then, eventually he wrote it, and so Shostakovich gave the music to Rostropovich to learn it. And then he, four days later, they met up for the first rehearsal, and, and Shostakovich was getting him a music stand. And Rostropovich said, I, I don't need it. He said, what do you mean? He said, I memorized it. What do you mean you memorized it? I just gave it to you four days ago. He said, I know, but it meant so much to me. I've memorized it already. And that was it. And they played it straight through in the rehearsal, and off he went. But the first few notes of this are all about identity. Sorry, it's not particularly loud. Da, da, do, do. This sense of a, a small cell becoming an identity. We know that Shostakovich always wrote his name into music. Da, 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 da. D, E flat, which means the Germans say S, C, and H is a German word for B natural. D, E flat, which is D-S-C-H, Dmitri Shostakovich. So he's always writing his, and his piece is all about him trying to find his identity. At the end of the piece, he writes some deliberately subversive Georgian things, a sort of a 
sticking some fingers up to Stalin, and which Rostropovich didn't even notice, but there's always these little things in Shostakovich. So with identity, when we think of Mozart, of course, this is what people usually think of. Paul Mozart. But I had to put it in, because it is the most famous piece that he wrote, whether he liked it or not. No one knows why he wrote it, undoubtedly to earn some money, and he probably whisked it off in about five minutes. Originally, there were meant to be five movements. One of them got lost, which is a terrible shame. But this is an example of how do we see Mozart? Do we see him as the man who's capable of really showing the true power of Don Giovanni? Or do we see him as chocolate balls in a glass cage that his father always wanted him to be seen, a giggling schoolboy making naughty toilet jokes from the film Amadeus? All depends, but that's the way he's usually seen, is just this perfect golden child who could do whatever he wanted, never had to worry about anything in life. Of course, by this stage, we know he'd already lost four children, and we know that she suffered a huge amount and lived more in his 35 years than most people lived in their entire life. But it does challenge our perception to think about this is what the world thinks of as Mozart. If you look at any sort of old comedy scene, show sophistication, Ina Klein and music. In fact, I think they even do it in Trading Places, which is a good film. Do you know that film, Training Places? Yeah. Yes, okay, good, just checking. So Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony. This is the last piece um, on this program, and this ties to the Italian theme, of course, of Don Giovanni. And really, this is Mendelssohn is a, almost a parallel to Mozart. Both were equal geniuses in what they did. They were both born with incredible gifts. Mozart had, this, um, sorry, Mendelssohn had the silver spoon. In fact, one of his mentors was no less than Goethe. That's not a bad pal to have, even if he's 70 years older than you. And around this time he died, so people think the second movement may have been written um, as a sort of a homage to him. But this piece of music was about his travels to Italy, uh, and it just has the most glorious, no matter what you're feeling, if you hear this music, you will feel better. It's true, isn't it? Straight away, the capacity of music just to lift you elegantly out of whatever funk you may find yourself in. Third movement is perfectly Mozartian, second movement, incredible depth. But the last movement is the one I love. And just to hear the, the festival orchestra play this, Saltarella. This is really fast, by the way. My alma mater, London Symphony with John Elliott Gardner. It's really fast. So this is a tarantella. Do you know what a tarantella is? It is a dance in which you would, how would you be if you were bitten by a tarantula spider? Or the dance in which you tried to avoid being bitten by a tarantula spider? Either way, absolute orchestral virtuosity is going to be great fun. All right, then we come to our last concert, and I brought a piece of music in which I know they've not played before. Quite a few this, this season we haven't. In fact, the fifth or the third have never been played by the mainly Mozart Festival Orchestra of Beethoven's. Uh, Dances of Galanta. This piece is, um, was basically recruitment music by Kadai. Kadai was a great um, Hungarian nationalist, along with Bartok, who traveled around all the um, villages collecting their folk songs because they knew that as the onset of industrialization went through, this entire language would be lost. So, so they went around, almost like flatless, catching a butterfly. They took, wrote down all this wonderful folk music. And this is one of his most famous pieces. And it's just glorious. And I'm just so excited to hear this with the festival orchestra. It has glorious, beautiful melodies. Here's a lovely one for you. So this is the end of the little cadenza. Plonk, plonk, here. Ah. I know it's quiet. It'll be louder in the concert. 
So this movement is music is called the bunkos, which is recruitment music. So what happened was these musicians would go into the villages, play this powerful nationalist music, and try and get people to join the army to go to war. It was the use of music as a powerful Uncle Sam, your country needs you, but more, come over here, young man. And the music at the end of this is going to have you rabble-rousingly on your feet, having a marvelous time, because Again, just imagine what it's going to be like with the musicians of the festival orchestra playing this type of stuff. It's such fun to conduct. It's a real sweaty one, though. It's great, though. And they can do it so fast. I may put my foot down at that point. I sometimes like to see the terror in their eyes. <laughs> so last season, as you remember, we had four piano concerti. I really wanted to sort of show that really the best way to understand Mozart is with this piano concerti. Obviously, for this season, I felt we needed to balance it, not quite so many. But I did put in, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> the glitter is always off-putting. Um, the Mozart, the, the, the concerto number 24, K491, which is one of the few he wrote in the minor key. If we think about the concerti we'd already heard, the one just before this is the A major, then before that we have the E flat that we finished with Anne-Marie McDermott last year, and there's the D minor that we heard with Conrad Tau as well, so always so brilliantly performed by our soloists. Dejan Lanzic has been with us before, he played the Haydn concerto, a marvellous Croatian pianist and a brilliant interpreter and composer of classical music as well. This piece is all in, one, in, in the minor key. For Mozart, that is extremely unusual for a um, piano concerto. There's a strange brooding quality to this that is a sort of a despairing sentiment. Someone described it as having a strange gravity. And usually, if you have a movement like this, the ending of the last movement will absolutely be in the major key. But Mozart finishes it like this. meant to be like a hunt, something positive. But he doesn't smile. It just keeps going. And it's sort of Don Giovanni-esque. Bum. In the minor key. Very, very unusual that he did that. Again, what does it say about him? We don't know. Sometimes with Mozart, the event that happened, which are tragic, comes out later in his music. The death of, the death of his mother came out months or even a year later with the Sinfonia Concertante. You can't always pinpoint where it is, but the sense of understanding of the agony as well as the ecstasy of the human life is so perfectly encapsulated in all that he does. And the final piece we do, Beethoven's Symphony No. 7, I wanted to put this with the Kodai because the Kodai is known as a piece which is to entice you into war. But the Beethoven was written as a memorial to all those who died in war. He said, we are moved by nothing but pure patriotism and the joyful sacrifice of, of powers for those who have sacrificed so much for us. And at the beginning of this piece, people tend to think it's, as Wagner says, the apotheosis of the dance, which has been such an unhelpful title for this piece because, in fact, there's a lot more profound things going on. Because when we think of this, we think of pure sunshine. But I don't. I think of it as something which is almost a bird, a pure sunshine or something elegant and simple, but hounded by the machinery of this trudging thing that goes on around it, as if the beauty is being raped by the industrialization or mechanism of war.
And when the, the, the sort of very mechanical scales come in, it's very incongruous. It's unpleasant almost. And I think we tend to patronize the composers. And that's why it's so important to understand when and where they wrote this. Because here, this little scale, this is not light-hearted music. This is something being held back. Of course, there's moments of exquisite joy and wonder and beauty. The second movement we all know so very well. And then the last movement, there's just this great party. But even in the great party, at the very end, I'll just play just the last little bit. This is the last thing I'll say. Listen to it from here. The basses. It's like jaws, and it drags you, holds you, and like a vice, and you're desperately trying to go into joy, and it pulls you back, pulls you back. He's going to stop any second. No, he keeps going. This darkness never leaves. Still there, still there. Keeps going. Not going to go yet. Keeps going. And you feel like you're gonna, you can't breathe in the music. He's still got it. Can you hear it in the bottom? Still going. Wait for it. <sighs> At last. At last he lets you go. And from here it's pure joy. But the piece is absolutely about war as well. love it. And guess what? Good wins. It's not all bad. Good wins. Well done you Beethoven. Marvellous work. Thank you very much. Thank you. As well as our marvellous music that we have, of course, we have a fantastic chamber player series, which we will have The Soldiers Tale by Stravinsky. We'll also have another concert, which will be Mozart C Major Quintet, paired with Prokofiev's Quintet, The Trapeze, which is for violin, viola, oboe, clarinet, and bass. And then in our final chamber music players concert, we will have uh, the Mozart G Minor Quintet with Vorjak Wind Serenade. So there's some absolute pearls. And now this season, unlike any other one before, we will be asking the musicians to curate their own overture chamber music concerts based upon the programs that we will give them. So we shall see what they will come up with. Lots of chamber music pieces I have never heard of. But are there any questions, anything you'd like to ask a, a conductor? Um, yes, I have stopped, if that's what you're going to ask. <laughs> you are free to go if you wish. It will not be socially awkward, but if you would like to ask any questions, um, to me, you're most welcome. Peggy. It's not a question, but I think everybody should hear what you told me last uh, about Mendelssohn's third movement of the Sixth Reformation. Yes, this is, so the, yeah, the, the, the Reformation Symphony, which we performed in the first concert, I think it was last season, um, there, there's this incredible thing where the, the flute represents Martin Luther. And then as a result of it, beforehand, he's using the music to show the merging of the Christian and Jewish churches. So he puts in this, this sort of this um, music from the synagogue paired with the Christian. And actually then and his music is meant to show us that humanity can be united in one form, which is tolerance and beauty, which I think nowadays we seem to need more than ever before. And that's why this music is not just music of the past. It's absolutely present and capable of helping us to see where, what we should be doing. It is as I mentioned before, sometimes a mirror to understand ourselves, but absolutely a lamp for a community of how we can work together 
and that is a great one. So thank you for that question. Yes, Pat. Do you tend to play the same program in Florida that you're playing here? No. <laughs> no, in Florida, I do crazy programs like the Rite of Spring, followed by Beethoven 5 in the Mahler version, then followed by a um, Scriabin Poem of Ecstasy, which absolutely murders my musicians, but it's great fun. So no, I do uh, much larger things. And of course, I do put in classical music um, from this period, Beethoven. But this year we're doing, um, over the two years, we're doing Be Beethoven 3, 5, 7, and 9 in Mahler's arrangement, which is for quadruple wins. Huge. Uh, and it's really good fun, and he retouches some of it. There's a wonderful moment in the Third Symphony in which he uses E-flat clarinet to ramp up the gypsy section in the G minor, which is brilliant. So I'm looking at it in, in a different way. But thank you for anyway. Yeah. Anything you'd like to know about conducting? <laughs> it's innate, it's genius, and it's humble. <laughs> Ken. That's a very good question. That was always my danger, is that once I finished this journey of the course, then I've sort of ended the festival. But actually, I do think there's so much great music afterwards. And then we can look at more thematic programming in terms of and, and pairing unusual things together and observing things in a different way. Um, I think we haven't done quite enough with Haydn. I mean, Haydn is, is sort of slightly, we've slightly been left behind a little bit during this, um, this process, and many other composers. But I think it affords us a great deal of freedom uh, but of course, every time we come back to Mozart, I hope that everybody has now a, a greater sense of kinship with his life and to understand and understand themselves better as a result of it. So I have some ideas. I have some wacky ideas. I have some normal ones. Um, but I will feel like, a, a, I mean, this has almost been a self, um, I've almost imprisoned myself into this journey. But I just feel it's such a compelling one to understand who is probably the most famous composer of all time. And I hope you have enjoyed the journey through it as well, that you have a deeper understanding of the man behind the music. <laughs>